Well, maybe the reason I was anxious to get up here today was because we start a new series and this is it right here on this card. A number of years ago, a woman said to me, she's from out of town, she said, you know, it's amazing that you're able to, um, as a church, to know what series you're doing, what texts and titles you're going to have. Well, the titles will always be the same as long as I preach, but if Scott's up here or Ken or somebody else, they could always change the title, but they're locked into the text. What we're going to talk about here is the third element of Jesus' great commission. Remember what he says, and we're going to look at it in a minute. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, the only place where these words in their entirety appear, there's only two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, where you get this kind of a commission, but Matthew's the most expansive. Jesus said, Go, ye therefore, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. I mean, to think about the fact that God became a man to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And then before he ascends into heaven, he makes a promise that he'll never leave us or forsake us. He'll be with us always. And then he gives us the same ministry that he began in Galilee and in Judea for only three years. So we are now a part of God's work in the world, and so often we lose sight of that. We think of God uh, in our lives, and we ask Him why these things happen. Why does our neighbor have it better than us? Why do we, if we live in Florida, why do we get these storms? And if you live in Pittsburgh, you don't get those kinds of storms. The same people who want to leave the snow and ice go down and get the winds and waves. (laughs) And the Lord is so patient. And what He tells us over and over again is, those things are minor. What is major is who you are, who you belong to, and why I've bought you with a price. And the answer is, so that you can do my ministry. So we're going to talk about that over the next 16 weeks, all the way through Christmas. The charge that Jesus has given us to keep. Now I'll say it now as we begin this series, if you look at all the commands of Christ, and it's hard to sort of sort it out because Jesus gives words of instruction, He gives words of warning, He he gives commands. You know, what is a command exactly? I mean, you have to sort it out. There was a guy about 140 years ago who said there were 236 commands of Jesus. Well, most of the people over the past century have boiled down all of Jesus' teaching and words into commands or instruction, and they say they're 50. A couple say they're 49. Well, we're going to look at 15 of them. Fifteen instructions Jesus gives us. But we begin today with the Great Commission, the end of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. The last words of Matthew's Gospel are these. Now the eleven went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Years ago, there was a ruthless businessman from Boston who was in New York City for a cocktail party. And during the middle of the cocktail party, after he had a few drinks... This man who everyone knew of an inflated ego and an avarice. He said, can I have your attention? There is one dream that I have to accomplish before I die. And that is that I wish to go to Israel. I want to climb up Mount Sinai and there on Mount Sinai read aloud the Ten Commandments. Mark Twain was there, and he said loudly, why don't you go back to Boston and keep them? (laughs) Isn't it interesting how mountains or hills sometimes turn our attention to the Lord? I don't know about you, but if you had the opportunity to go to real mountains, not those in West Virginia maybe, little hills, but mountains... It's an amazing thing how often mountains turn your attention to the Lord. They're bigger than you. They seem to point in a direction that we usually think of when we think of the Lord. Did you know that in the Bible there are over 500 mountains and hills that are named? 502 years ago, Michelangelo finished his sculpture of Moses. And you can see it in Rome. He carved a statue of Moses sitting down over eight feet tall. He's pictures an old man with a long flowing beard. He has muscular arms, at least you see one of the arms, and under that muscular arm is the Ten Commandments. And for hundreds of years, people have gone to Rome to look at that statue. You can see it today in Rome. And interestingly, most of the people that go there scratch their heads over one feature of this statue, and that is Moses' head, because on his head, Michelangelo put two horns. And people have asked, why the horns? Why does Moses have horns? And the answer is simple when you recognize the Bible that Michelangelo was reading. It was the Vulgate. It was the Latin translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in in Exodus chapter 34, the Bible says that God calls Moses up to Mount Sinai for a second time, where Moses sees the glory of God. The Bible says, as Moses comes down from that mountain, seeing the glory of God, his face shone. He had a shiny face. And when the Latin translators were translating the word shone into Latin, they translated it horns. In other words, what Michelangelo read was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he had horns. 
And so he sculpted him with horns. Now today, if you were chiseling out another statue of Moses, you would have a better translation, and maybe you'd simply make his face more radiant than yours. But you know, that's not the only mistranslation or misunderstanding of that experience that Moses had on Mount Sinai. I mean, for years I was taught, and the Bible indicates that Moses' face shone. And I was always taught, and the Bible seems to indicate, that Moses wore a veil because his shining face scared the children of Israel. But a few years ago, I was reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I read words that Paul states that made me understand something a little differently. Listen to what he says. Speaking to Christians, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze on the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You see, the reason Moses wore a veil was because that shining face was fading. In other words, whatever transformation happened in Moses' life as a result of that experience on Mount Sinai, it was fading. It was temporary. It was glorious. It was genuine, but it was coming to an end. You know why? Because it was just external. The change Moses experienced on Mount Sinai was an external change. The change that Jesus makes in our lives is an internal change. Now think of the mountains that you remember in the Bible. There are 500 of them, so we won't go through all of them, but Mount Ararat, Genesis chapter 8, that's where Moses, or that's where Noah's ark came to rest, and the Lord makes a covenant with Noah and all creation. Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Exodus chapter 34, Moses is on Sinai. God reestablishes or renews His covenant. There's Mount Carmel. There's Mount Nebo. There's Mount Horeb. There's Mount the Mount of Olives. There's Mount Zion. Mountains are the places where God so often encounters His people and He tells them what He expects them to do. He gives them a clear vision of himself and what he intends for them. And no gospel writer understood that any more clearly than Matthew. I mean, think about Matthew's gospel. Jesus begins his ministry on a mountain. Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's how Moses begins the ministry of Jesus. But look how he ends it. He ends it on a mountain. Now eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and Jesus came to them. I love the difference. On the first mountain of his ministry, 
the disciples and the people came to Jesus. Or they, Jesus, they came to Him. On the last mountain, Jesus comes to them. Now, there's a huge difference between the first mountain and the last mountain. Think about it. On the mount, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sits down and teaches them like a rabbi would. On the last mountain, Jesus stands as king and issues them a charge. There is no other gospel that portrays Jesus more as a king than Matthew. Matthew gives us more of a comprehensive understanding of Jesus' teaching than any other gospel. In fact, Matthew puts Jesus' teaching sections into five distinct sections of his gospel. That's why they're affectionately known as the five books of Matthew, so that none of us would miss a word. So if you want to find a record of what Jesus teaches, it's easy in Matthew. Matthew 5 to 7, and then it goes on. Five different teaching sections. I have an uncle that lives in the south, and Years ago, he came to know Christ. For years, he read the Bible. For years, he witnessed uh, to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He told others about Jesus. But in the last couple of years, he has turned his back on the Gospel, and he's gone to the Torah. He reads the first five books of Moses. To him, the words of Moses are more important than the words of Jesus. You know what Matthew would probably say about that? He probably would say something like Billy Sunday said, a sinner can repent, but stupid is forever. See, to Matthew, Mount Sinai doesn't hold a candle to this mountain in Galilee. You see, for Matthew, Jesus is not just the law giver, He's the law keeper. For Matthew, there's only one complete expression of God's covenant, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. That's why in Matthew's Gospel, before he ascends, he calls his disciples. He meets them on a mountain. There are no clouds. There's no veil necessary. There's no darkness. There's no fear. It's the light of day. And Jesus gathers those disciples together. And He institutes a new covenant with a new people, the people of God, His church. And there He gives them a commission. You know, the word commission comes from two Latin words, com meaning with and missio meaning send. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I'm your king and I'm sending you out together with me with a charge to keep. In other words, you are going to do what I have been doing. And I will be with you as you do it. So let's dig into the commission. First of all, notice the location. Look at verse 16. Now the disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Did you know that there are a lot of scholars that believe this place, this mountain, is exactly the same one in which Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount? They say it's in Capernaum 
on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's as far away from Jerusalem still being in Palestine as possible. So think about this. The resurrected Jesus speaking through an angel and through his own mouth to Mary and Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, says, go tell my brothers to meet me on the mountain in Galilee, the one I have already designated to them. And they therefore have to go nearly 200 miles north to that mountain. Now why would Jesus select that mountain? Because it's as far away from Jerusalem, still being in Palestine, as you can get. It's away from all the chaos. It's away from all of the, all of the suspicion. It's a place of complete clarity. Not only that, this mountain near Capernaum was the center of the world. There's a major north-south trade route that went right through that area. Every nationality, every culture, every race traversed that road. So when Jesus says, go into all the world, they don't have to go very far. They just have to come down the mountain and there is the world. All they have to do is go into the street. Matthew says in Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes on seven mountains. Remember the first one? Matthew says Satan takes Jesus after he's baptized up a mountain to a high point where he could see all of the world. And I've known people to say, come on, there's no one mountain where you see the whole world. Well, to the Jews, they would recognize the whole world is Palestine. But regardless of that, remember what Satan says to Jesus? You bow down and worship me and I'll give you all of it. Remember what Jesus says to him? My translation, buzz off. Here on this final mountain, Jesus calls his disciples up on the mountain and he says... Go into all the world because I'm giving it to you. Somebody said, when you read the gospel, especially Matthew, it's as if you see Jesus' authority grow. In the beginning, He has authority to dispel Satan and forgive sin. Then through the body of His ministry, He has authority over the lives of others, as well as His own. But here on the eve of His ascension, His authority reaches boundless proportions. Look what He says. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to Me. No shining face. No clothes becoming like white as light. No appearance of Moses and Elijah. No voice from a cloud that terrifies. There is nothing that resembles the Mount of Transfiguration. Six chapters earlier except one thing. On the Mount, seven, six chapters earlier, the Mount of Transfiguration, God says from a cloud, this is my Son, listen to Him. In other words, He is God. But on this mountain... Jesus says, I'm God. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. 
Second, notice not only the location, notice the lesson. Look at verse 17. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. You know, that's one verse that always troubled me. Some doubted. Really? I mean, like, who doubted? I mean, Thomas, he was fixed. I mean, they'd seen him. He'd broken bread with them. They had seen him. How could some doubt? The answer is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. You know what Paul says there? Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. I think this is the time. The 11 are there, but also there are 489 <laughs> others. And some of them doubt. Why did they doubt? Well, maybe they had never seen Him before, the resurrected Jesus. They were still living in the doubt of the crucifixion. Maybe they doubted it was Him because He was a distance away. But then Matthew says, Jesus came to them. We don't know. But you know what we do know? Most of them worshipped Him. You know how they did that? The same way they did it on the Mount of Transfiguration. They fell on their faces before Him. They worshipped Him. Years ago, a man I know went to Beaumont, Texas. He was driving along and he came to a red light and stopped. It was a warm summer day so he had his windows down. And a car pulls up right next to him where a little girl says to her father, seeing a billboard right in front of them that said, go to the church of your choice and worship God on Sunday. So she says to her father, hey daddy, what's worship mean? And her father says, worship, that means to go to a church and listen to a preacher talk. And the man who heard it thought to himself, is there possibly a worse definition of worship than that? Do you know what the word worship means? It comes from an Anglo-Saxon word that is translated this way, worth-ship. It's to acknowledge the worth of someone or something in your life. It is the act of saying, you or that thing is the most important thing in my life at this moment. So look what they do on the mountain. All of the worth of their life goes to Jesus. He's their focal point. He's the one for, which, for whom they're willing to forsake everything else. It's all about Him. Here on this mountain, everything becomes crystal clear to them. Jesus is Lord. And what do they do? They worship Him. Have you ever had that experience in worship? It's this, at a particular moment in worship, it's as if nothing else matters to you. You've got this vision, this view of Jesus, and it all makes sense. Everything else in your life is clutter. His Lordship 
is crystal clear to you. Third, notice not only the location, the lesson, notice the license. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, therefore go. John Knox, the famous Scottish reformer, said, When Satan took Jesus up a mountain, he said to him, If you worship me, I'll give all of the world to you. When Jesus takes his brothers up the mountain, he says, Because you worship me, I will give you not only this world, but heaven too. Think of it. Here's the king of the universe sending them out. Ten chapters earlier, he sent them out to the house of Israel. Now he sends them out to the world. And he says, I'm sending you into the world that I've given you, and I call you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now in these three verses, Jesus uses the word all four times. Look what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Three times, or four times in three verses, Jesus uses the word all. Do you know how significant that is? The number four in the Bible is associated with the fourth day of creation. Do you remember what God does on the fourth day of creation? He calls the sun and the moon and the stars and He puts them in place and He separates light from darkness. That's exactly what God's doing here. He's recreating the spiritual universe. He's saying to them, you are now going with Me into all the world as light into the darkness. Go and make disciples. Go and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. You know what the word to observe means? It literally means to keep. Terio in Greek, to keep. In ancient times, sailors, whenever they were sailing out on the sea, and they were trying to chart their course, they'd use the stars. And they'd call it keeping the stars. The stars enabled them to be guided. Keeping the stars. And that's what Jesus is saying about what He has taught us. My words, my warnings, my commands are dependable lights for charting the course of your life. They will guide you when you have to make tough decisions. They will keep you from making stupid decisions. They will show the world what I'm like. And they will enable you to thrive. And what he's saying to them is, I'm sending you together with me out into the world to light up the world. You know, David Livingston, pioneer missionary in Africa, he was once asked, what sustained you through all those decades in Africa? You know what he said? 
the last words Jesus utters, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, what Livingston was saying is, I have never been alone. And you know what proved it? In one of the last years he was in Africa, his wife dies. Livingston does some things that are very unusual when she dies. He builds the coffin. He places her body in it. He seals it. He digs the hole. He puts her in the grave. He covers her with dirt. And when he is done, you know what he does? He opens his Bible and he reads it to all those his associates around him, Africans. He reads these words. Matthew 28, 16-20, the Great Commission. And when he finished reading it, he said to his African associates, Jesus is too much of a gentleman not to keep his word. Let's get on with the task. Now, I've known a lot of widowers. I haven't known too many to say that. Jesus is too much of a gentleman not to keep his word. Let's get on with the task. You see, Livingston understood the difference between Mount Sinai and this mountain in Galilee. If you are living with a perspective that get, comes from Mount Sinai, 34th chapter of Exodus, if you view God's commands that way, it's going to produce fear and maybe even horns. But... If you understand God's Word in Matthew 28 on this mountain in Galilee, where there's no cloud, there are no veils, there's no thunder or lightning, there's simply His Word that says, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. It will produce in you joy and peace. It requires no boundaries. And it expresses itself in a life of gratitude. When you understand His commands, and understand that He's not only the commander, but He's the keeper, that changes everything. <clears throat> and you can stay with Livingston. Let's get on with the task. So the next 15 weeks, we're going to look at what Jesus commands. We're going to seek to observe them. Till then, think about this. Amen.